0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome
1: everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. So those of you who have been coming for the last few weeks uh, know we've been looking at this theme of equanimity. And uh, it's such an important attitude, both in terms of being a means to developing insight or a means to happiness, but also it's a good, as good as any definition of happiness. You now, equanimity doesn't sound as exciting as you know joy or ecstasy. But one of the things, you know if we really pay attention, one of the things we begin to discover that the quieter forms of happiness, like equanimity, like peace, are actually more resonant, more pleasurable than the more excited forms of happiness. But you know you don't want to take this because I'm saying it. Just experiment in your own life the kind of happiness the heart or mind actually prefers. So I thought uh, to take a few minutes before going back to some of the material, material that I'd like to cover, just to check in about sitting practice in light of equanimity. And just any questions you might have about how you're practicing, and what does that have to do with equanimity, just allowing things to be, or not struggling with experience. So first, any questions anybody has? And please don't be shy if you have questions. Yes, Kat. Um,
0: what I really noticed was as thoughts would arise they were always accompanied with emotions and before I would say this one is what it is there was always an analysis that went with oh this is stupid this is you know it's this thought but it, this is the emotions uh, and then uh, you know I mean guilt shame but those things come up and it's always like I want to put it away real quick. Yeah. But what I noticed is as I was sitting, it sort of left like a residue in my head. Even though I would come back to the breath, it was still like I would feel it in my body. um, Is that
1: a version versus the sound? Yeah, well, one of the hardest parts of the practice, and consequently, one of the most important parts of the practice. In any moment, you know, with whatever's going on, is actually to clearly understand what's happening or what's predominant. Because just because we think this is what's going on, you know, we're paying attention to our experience, it seems like we're being mindful oh, this is going on. But actually, the only way we know that we're aware of what's going on uh, is. The experience there's a a transformation when the mind or when attention knows what's actually predominant there's a transformation that happens because in that moment of knowing what's actually predominant in the mind ignorance disappears from the mind because ignorance by definition the technical definition of ignorance is attention you know the part of the mind that knows isn't actually knowing what's really going on And that's a disconnect and so in any given moment when the mind actually is connecting aware open to what's predominant it's like uh, something comes online Uh, there's a certain dimensionality to the experience and understanding like what's going on and how to respond or how to relate skillfully to it that may not have existed the moment before so the reason I bring this up is if you're sitting and you seem to be aware that there's thinking happening, but it also seems like the mind is caught and being sort of pushed around by experience, struggling with experience, reactive to experience, then the thing that we'd like to arise in the mind is some thought, some kind of humility that says, well, maybe the mind isn't actually understanding what's predominant. And and then that kind of, opens us to more receptive mode again like well what is happening what is predominant because remember just because something's predominant doesn't mean it's big and obvious like sometimes what's predominant is very subtle so the content of our thought may seem like it's predominant but the nudgy little relatively quiet emotion sort of sneaking around the edges of the content actually might be what's really relevant, what really in a sense is asking to be seen, to be open to to be explored. So that's that's a good general strategy. When the mind is aware, but also the experience is the feeling of being pushed around or struggling with experience, then just assume that the mind isn't seeing everything. That there's, there's other phenomena, emotion, subtle sensations, moving, happening, that for whatever reason, the mind's not clear about, not seeing clearly, not completely open to allowing it to be. And then, it, then the other just uh, basic instruction is, you know, generally to go from gross to subtle. So from the content to the emotion that, in a sense, is uh, fueling the mental content, the thoughts. And then from the emotion, you can even get more subtle to is that emotion and the way that it's moving in the mind or heart, is it pleasant or unpleasant? So to really get to the ouch of the moment, or the absence of ouch, you know, that, that almost that visceral sense of the mind being uh, at ease or the mind ill at ease. The ouch or the release, because that's actually, in a way, always relevant. Even though it might seem the content of our thoughts is relevant, more relevant, or the emotion itself, but the really the thing that's actually relevant is: is this all hurting, or does this all feel good? That's actually what matters, because that's whether you know if it feels good or if it feels not good. The mind basically takes its cue from that. That's what's triggering a lot of the habit energy. And if we don't see the ouch or the feeling of release and comfort or pleasantness, if we don't see that clearly, the mind's going to be confused. We think we're mindful, but we're not actually connecting. Does that help? Other thoughts about practice? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we are learning, we're, we're trying to develop the skill to tranquilize the mind. Because when the mind is overwhelmed and restless, it doesn't see things clearly. But, you know, as we tranquilize the mind, we need to start activating a more pure kind of interest or investigation. Not an investigation or an interest in the present moment driven by greed or driven by aversion, but just interest for the sake of interest. You know, it sounds a little bit heavy, but it's not. But just like wanting to know the truth of the present moment. That will energize the mind. So as you get tranquil, develop partly through trial and error, the capacity, the skill of energizing the mind in this pure way. It's, you know, part of it comes out of our aspiration, like you know, I don't want to just keep living my life with the wisdom, the understanding that I currently have. I would, it would be nice to be wiser, you know, to understand more deeply how to be skillful in life, how to deal with having a mind and a body. So we need to be motivated to have that interest in the mind, in the present moment, and then out of that relatively pure interest, pure motivation, then ask your attention to see more. You know, like you can, you can encourage or make resolves or just invite the mind to have more uh, interest, more. Getting more information about the in-breath, you know, tracking it more closely, the out-breath. Tracking the emotions more closely, the ouch, you know, whether there's dukkha or suffering or stress or tightness in the mind or body. Tracking that more carefully with interest, not in order to get rid of it, but in order to understand it as a present moment phenomenon. Because this is my life now. Why wouldn't I want to be close? Why wouldn't I want to really... Be aware of how it is right now. That will wake. That will brighten up the mind. Now it might be that you're just sleep deprived. But assuming it's not that you're sleep deprived, then you, you have to find a relatively pure way to energize the mind. This is a classic problem with sort of intermediate meditators, is they start getting more skill at tranquilizing the mind, but they haven't yet developed skill at energizing the mind in this neutral or this pure way. I mean, we can all energize our minds in impure ways. You know, I can think about what would make me happy, you know, like fixing my house this way or getting this or getting... And I could, you know, I could be very energized. I could sit very still for about an hour and a half, two hours and plan all kinds of things. And my mind would be really bright, but it would be fueled by, you know, greed and aversion, and there'd be the the inevitable tension that would go along because it's being fueled by greed and aversion but how can we have that brightness without any consequent tension without any tension that goes with it just a pure interest, desire to know the truth of how it is yeah. and it's a kind of joy that, that kind of interest it's like a pure energy but it takes a while to to know how to activate that. Thanks, Nicholas, right? Yeah, thanks, Nicholas. Other comments? Yeah, Sharon.
0: Take my attention to
1: the emotion underneath that, and does that dispel, or I'm, I'm kind of wondering why. hmm Well, uh, before you do that, you, there's a momentary momentary assessment, like is my mind balanced enough to actually look at thought and look at emotion and look at even what's underneath the emotion. Because it may not be. So that's the first step, you know. It's like, do I have enough stability and enough calm uh, to actually take a look at that? Or maybe at this point, what would be more skillful, you know, even though it's not perfect, is to let go of the content of the thought and just come back to the body or come back to the breath or come back to hearing, just as a way of stabilizing the attention, developing a little bit more samadhi or concentration. But assuming that there is enough balance, the mind isn't in a really reactive state, there's some calm, some pure interest, you know, in how things are in the moment, then yeah, you notice the content. Generally the, the thing to remember is you go from gross to subtle. Because generally speaking, what's subtle is more significant than what's gross. So we're going from like dense frequency to subtle frequency. And even though a thought relative to sensation is subtle. <clears throat> but in terms of that actual experience, <clears throat> there's the thought <clears throat> the actual content, you know the language that's moving in our mind. But generally that not always, but generally content, mental content is being fueled by some kind of feeling or emotion first. <clears throat> you know we're a little irritable or we're a little greedy in you know wanting something to happen. And so we feel that. And then it's like noticing, well, is that emotion pleasant or unpleasant? So that's even more subtle. So in a way, you're distilling the anger or the craving or whatever the emotion might be. could be a wholesome emotion too, right? Gratitude, uh, forgiveness. So whatever the emotion is, you're distilling it to whether it hurts or not. But Hurting in this way is a very kind of subtle hurt, because it's a mental pain or pleasantness. As opposed to the energetic or physical contraction, or that that can help you, like feeling how it is in the body can help you tune in to the, how it, in a sense, feels in the heart. You know, having this emotion feels like this in the heart. Is the feeling tone pleasant or unpleasant? So that we can get quite skilled at going immediately from content to noticing what it feels like. And then if we can relate in an honest, uh, wise way to the feeling, then the whole thing can dissipate very quickly. But we're not doing it to make it dissipate. We're doing it to understand what's going on. And in a way, it's like understanding things deeply is like digesting them without a trace. You know, it's like no poop. <laughs> just gets consumed. And, and then we're on to the next moment. And, it, and the, there's always a trace. When we're not digesting the moment completely, not seeing it from the subtle all the way to the gross, then there's always something left over. And generally, we're reacting to whatever's left over. And, and it's sort of, that's the sort of layers of complication. So first, assess if the mind has enough balance. If it doesn't, come back to a neutral object as a means, it's just like medicine. You know, I need some medicine. I'm going to come back to the breath. This is a neutral object. My mind is getting in the habit of connecting and sustaining and and cultivating wholesome qualities by being aware of the breath. So we do that work. But if there is enough balance, then look at the distraction as a meditation. So the distraction becomes the object of meditation. Then we work from gross to subtle. The practice is always the same. How we relate to the gross is the same as how we relate to the subtle. We try to be clearly aware and relaxed, not trying to fix or control it, but just allowing clarity to be enough. Yeah. Thanks, Sharon. Yeah, Nick.
0: Uh,
1: maybe a little louder, Nick, so they can hear you in the back
0: distractions is, and this is a very calm and is, is the truth of that second in my life whether it's an evil thought or a pleasant thought or a an and i just see it as true, the truth and neutral it looks off the screen yeah. and it comes back again but once I see that Because it seems like truth is you know, the realm of joy and, and cognitive
1: thoughts can't get and So, if you didn't hear Nick, he was saying that when he experiences a distraction and when his mind is able to understand that that's the truth of the present moment, that tends to—did you say disappear? I forget the word you use—disappear quickly and. Uh, And the interesting thing in our practice is, you know, a lot of the times, especially in Vipassana circles, this particular tradition of Buddhist practice, we kind of break down what happens in the mind, and we talk about it. But when the mind is humming along, there's a lot of calm and wisdom. Then things happen very quickly, and you don't need to like go from gross the medium-gross to medium-subtle to very subtle. You know, it's not like stages. It all happens at once. Because when the mind sees the distraction, like Nick was describing, I'm sure it's not always that way for Nick, but when it is that way, it's like the mind is seeing the whole picture, that experience from the gross to the subtle, all at once. In a way, it's digesting the moment completely in that moment. Nothing left over completely ready for the next moment, whatever that might be, whether it's an evil thought or a beautiful thought or an evil, difficult sensation in the body or a pleasant sensation in the body. And that's actually a nice image for what we might call awakening or enlightenment or the fruit of practice is to have more moments where we're completely digesting the moment, no trace left over. So we could have a really difficult interaction, but, but the heart or mind is so fully present, so f- deeply wise in that difficult moment that there's nothing reverberating after that moment is over. It's like, in a sense, and it doesn't mean in an objective sense we were perfectly skillful in that moment. But in a spiritual sense, the mind didn't do anything extra in that moment. It didn't create any suffering, didn't create any legs. So after that moment is over, it's over. And I know this from experience, so this is not like far away for us. Like there are times when I'm unskillful in a moment, unskillful in an objective sense. Like I didn't handle it maybe in hindsight as best I could. Somebody got hurt unnecessarily, or, you know, I forgot to do something. But I can be very clean, like if I, uh, if I have that sort of presence and that wisdom and that see, clear seeing, I can sort of have that moment without any trace. So even though I, I didn't act perfectly in, in sort of a worldly sense, in a spiritual sense, I haven't created any suffering in the mind. There's no tension left in the mind from that interaction. And so I might, you know, in a worldly, from a worldly perspective, it might be appropriate for me to go and ask forgiveness or to go back and fix something or, but it wouldn't be done out of, it wouldn't be uh, suffering. It would be just the next thing to do. Just like if there isn't anything to do, the next thing to do would be to do something else. And this is a really beautiful image for the fruit of our practice because we'll start noticing little moments like this already. So instead of having an idealistic notion that someday now we're a stupid suffering human being, but someday we'll be, you know, a deeply wise, non suffering human being, we can see that, you know, some moments I'm a stupid suffering human being, you know? And other moments I'm a wise non suffering human being. And just kind of appreciate that dynamic and not having to sort of pigeonhole ourselves like I'm ignorant. I'm wise, you know. No, some moments there's ignorance. You know, this the expression of this mind and body is, you know, by ignorant I mean it's creating suffering for itself and probably others. And in other moments, it's not. And just to be aware of that, it really takes the self out of this whole process of awakening. Otherwise it can become just another ego trip, you know, trying to become awake or free or something like that. Any last uh, questions about practice that come to mind? So let's take a little time to look back at equanimity. Um, you know, there are a lot of beautiful expressions of equanimity. But one that we've been working on that I find really helpful, and I, I went through last week and I want to review and then kind of expand it a little this week, is just a, two different approaches to happiness. And um, this is just good to hear over and over again. I find it useful at least, and also then to to bring it up in your life and to reflect on these two kinds of happiness, happinesses. So one kind of happiness, and the Buddha completely owned that there is happiness in experience. You know, I had a nice bowl of organic chocolate chip mint chocolate chip ice cream today you know, with a banana in it. And it felt like, you know, it was pleasant. And it, it even felt pleasant after I finished. You know, just sort of <laughs> sitting there in my ever-enlarging belly. <laughs> so, you know, and it's, it was pleasant walking early this morning before it got hot. And there are a lot of pleasant experiences in my day today. I had a nice lunch with a good friend. I had a nice bowl of Vietnamese noodle soup. know so there's a lot of pleasant things that happen in our life what the Buddha teaches in no way denies the pleasantness of sense experience including the sense experience of having pleasant ideas like all beings are doing the best they can well that's a pleasant thought actually to have that thought in the mind but all of these things are limited all these sense experiences are limited and last week I talked about what limits all experience, all sense experience. It's limited by the truth of change. It's limited by any, in any way that we try to grasp or identify with our sense experiences. That, trying to hold on to the experience, trying to identify with it or make it ours, is itself stressful. Like, it's one thing to have a nice house, but as soon as I, in my mind, Start thinking about that house being mine. There's tension. You know, like my wife's in the room now. If if I happen, if when I'm kind of gazing out there, if I look at her, you know, and I and my mind congeals. It's ah, my wife. Even something as simple as that is tension. So this is the truth of any sense experience we identify with. We suffer, even if it's subtle. So, like, you might be feeling, "Boy, this is just a great practice," and I really appreciate the center, and I appreciate this, this ancient tradition of, of Buddhist practice. But if the mind identifies, like, "Oh, I'm, I'm really somebody who's committed to this," then all of a sudden there's tension. But the first part of it, you know, just the appreciation or the gratitude, well, that's just that's really pleasant in the mind. But the identification with the tradition. My Buddhist practice, you know, that is suffering. So that's the second thing we begin to see about all sense experience is that any identification ruins it, it spoils it. It's not the sense experience itself that's bad, it's what the mind tends to do. It doesn't have to, but tends to do with sense experience. So it's ephemeral. All sense experience, whatever it is, has the characteristic of coming and going. It changes. It's always in flux. Nothing is fixed in terms of sense experience. If we grasp it, it hurts. And the third and more subtle truth about sense experience is we can't actually find a a center to it. It can't actually be held in any way. It's related to the impermanence, but it goes a little deeper. It's like a, the thought that came to my mind is like if you take objects like you know I mentioned my house or our land let's say you own land or a car anything you know it, conventionally we say what's well, mine I own this it belongs to me but you know it's like that's just an idea we have last night somebody broke into one of our cars luckily they didn't ruin it but they did take some things and uh, you know, we, we feel violated because, well, it's our car. You know, somebody went into our car. But that's just an idea we have, you know, that it's our car. I know it's a really strong idea. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't it interesting? I mean, we have we we uh, this idea, you know, like land and car and this life. But what is it that's ours? You know, we're, it, we're kind of putting a center like... To the car, to the land, or to ourselves. Creating something, it's called a concept. A concept we can grasp. Life really isn't graspable in that way. It's like in order for me to grasp my plot of land and the house that's on it, I have to conceptualize it in my mind. You know, even if I build a big fence, it doesn't, it's not really grasping that land. You know I mean I know in a kind of conventional sense it keeps people out but it in no way makes it mine no matter how big the fence is no matter how sophisticated the security system is it doesn't really make it mine the only thing that makes it mine is my thought that it's mine and any you know way that I can make you think that so it makes my thought that it's mine seem more permanent because you guys agree with me yeah that's your land you see what I mean? So this is this kind of points to this other part of sense experience that there's no way we can own it, and any any kind of way of trying to make it more than what it is, which is just a very uh, you know it's it's empty of this empty in a sense of sort of uh, ownership or belonging or even being able to distinguish. It's like I you know, when you're flying along, you don't see the difference between Minnesota and Wisconsin. Or even, you know, the United States and Canada. These are things we create. I mean it feels so distinct. Canada, the United States, even it's in a silly way, you know, Wisconsin, Minnesota. I'm a Packers fan. I'm a Vikings fan. You know? Isn't it so funny how we do this and it becomes our reality, you know? I live in St. Paul. I live in Minneapolis, you know. I practice out of Vipassana meditation center. I go to a Zen center, you know. We create all these boundaries, and they are real to the degree that our mind makes them real. But as soon as we go beyond or loosen that, uh, that sort of repetition of the concept, the whole world opens up in a way in a centralist way is really this experience. So it's absolutely okay to seek happiness and sense experience. But as we do that, we have to understand that we're going to always find change. We're going to always find that grasping is unpleasant. Any identification is unpleasant. And that there's really, ultimately, nothing there that that is meaningful for a (coughs) self. So this is a limited kind of happiness. So we should appreciate it in that light. That's what the Buddha would suggest, probably. Not to be afraid of pleasant experience or beautiful experience, just to appreciate it for what it is, this momentary experience. Like when you have a really lovely uh, interaction with your lover, your partner, a good friend, And just to really appreciate that lovely interaction in that moment. But not to be defining it like, oh yeah, this is how it's going to be, this relationship. And then, so the first part of our spiritual practice is recognizing that sense experience isn't to be feared. You know, we don't want to become an extreme ascetic thinking that the life of sense experience is dangerous. But we don't want to be someone just assuming that this is the ticket to happiness. So this is the middle way. When we practice the middle way, then we open up to another kind of happiness, which is the happiness of a mind that isn't clinging to sense experience. So when we have a healthy, wise relationship to sense experience, we're not afraid of pleasant. We're not afraid of unpleasant. We're, in a sense, happily. Relating, dealing with whatever arises in our life experience. Okay, now it's like this for us. Now it's like this. Now it's like this. And when it's pleasant, completely appreciating, being grateful for when it's pleasant. And when it's difficult, completely welcoming and understanding that in this moment, it can't be other than this right now. This is how it is now. And just if there's something we can do about the unpleasantness, we do it. And if there's nothing we can do about it, well, then there's nothing we can do about it. But in either way, getting tight because our life is difficult in a moment, that tightness doesn't help. What helps is to be relaxed. And in that acceptance, then we'll see. Well, if there's something to do, then do it in a relaxed way. And if there's nothing to do, well, then there's nothing to do. And we just continue on. The more we practice and live in that way, the more something begins to dawn on the mind. And this is the deeper expression of equanimity. It's really the equanimity that arises with wisdom. The more the mind begins to integrate what it's learning in dealing with sense experience, the pleasant and the unpleasant, getting more skillful at not holding on to the pleasant, not pushing away the unpleasant, but just taking things that arise and dealing with them skillfully, responding skillfully, in a relaxed, wise way. Then what dawns in the mind is a, a, a kind of, the, it generalizes the experiences, the understanding that it's having in different situations in, in its life. It's generalizing it to a more profound and consistent or complete letting go, uh, sort of non-grasping, non-clinging, non-identifying not attaching, just becomes, in a sense, more and more of the habit of the mind. So when we see, when we hear, when we think, when we have physical sensations, we don't take any of that personally, or we begin to take it less and less personally. And it's like a kind of inner Teflon. It's not an indifference, like we don't... Because that would be more like... We want to control our experience by not caring, but sort of using aversion to avoid getting hurt. Well, we probably most of us have learned that that doesn't work. You know, closing our heart and mind to life in order to avoid getting hurt just makes us feel dead and depressed. So that's not the path. The path is to allow the natural sensitivity. You know, as a creature, we are naturally sensitive. So we don't want to deny that sensitivity. We want to actually open it up, free it up. But we want to realize uh, this possibility, and then to cultivate this possibility of not clinging. It's like a free fall. This non-clinging. You know, one of the manifestations, as as I was thinking about this today, it's like just begin to notice, and I I bet this is already happening in some places in your life, and probably definitely not happening in other places in our lives, where, you know, like some places in our lives, we've really learned not to tell ourselves stories. Like maybe you have a particular relationship with someone that in the past was really difficult and would be the cause for a lot of shame or humiliation to come up, you know, a person to make you feel bad about yourself. And then you tell yourself stories. You know, I'm no good. You know, I'll never be as good as this other person. Or maybe when you come, become a little bit more wise, you start to blame the other person. I'm fine. This person's just a jerk. You know. You know. But that's you know. That's also stressful. That maybe ultimately we can get to a place in that, that particular relationship where the person does what he or she does. You know, maybe they they act inappropriately. You know, they're judging or being really critical, but we don't have to tell ourselves a story about it. It's like we see, we're aware of what they're doing, how they're relating to us. We understand that maybe they're being unskillful. We might even feel you know, those old buttons that used to get pushed. We still feel those buttons in us, but we don't. And then we feel the pain because those buttons are getting pushed, but we don't tell ourselves any stories about the pain. So that's like uh, going back to what I was saying earlier. There's no trace, you know. So we leave that interaction, and we're not like all these stories aren't going on in the mind. Or another example might be you you hear the news, you read the New York Times, or you listen to the news. And once again, you know, some politician is doing something based on greed, or something like that, or ignorance, or and you know, of course, being wise, you see exactly what's wrong. You know, and our habit is, of course, to tell ourselves stories. You know, like politicians shouldn't be trusted; we should throw the lot out, or whatever you might think. Or these politicians are good, and those politicians are bad, or something like that. And you know, we can tell ourselves a lot of stories. And generally, if you're like me, these stories are very unpleasant to have going on in our mind. It just, you know, we get tied up into knots about good and bad and things like that. But wouldn't it be nice to not have to disconnect from the world, you know, to every once in a while hear the news or read the news, but, but not to have any trace. You know, we just, okay, this is what's going on. Not to be surprised by what people do or surprised by how the news is reported, but just to, to learn what we can learn and not to feel compelled because of our habit energy to keep talking to ourselves about it in a way that, ties the mind up into knots, ties the heart up into knots. This is an expression of equanimity, not to have to keep telling ourselves stories. You know, and that, that quietness, you know, we often hear about stillness, quietness, spaciousness. You know, we use these words a lot to describe what the practice is about, what the practice leads to. But it's not a stillness or quietness that comes from suppression or repression. You know, like I mean, maybe to a little degree we do that. Like we'll go on a retreat where there's not a lot of media, where there's not a lot of talking, where there's not a lot going on, or we come and we sit and meditate in a quiet place. So in a way, you know, we're simplifying the environment. But the path, the direction of the path is leading in the direction where we're not dependent on having a quiet meditation center or having a quiet Buddhist retreat to go to or having you know living Victoria a longtime community member is moving to the mountains of Colorado we're all going to go visit you Victoria <laughs> but you know and as nice as it is to have a beautiful quiet place to go to we don't it, it what isn't beautiful is to need it right it's nice to have the quiet cabin on the perfect lake, you know, or North Shore, right? But to need that, that doesn't feel good. To be dependent on that, you know, it's nice to have a good friend, but it doesn't feel ni- nice to be dependent on a good friend. It's nice to have health, but if we're dependent on being healthy, then there's tension that we we'll be better off not having. Because whatever we have, of course, could be. Taken away. It is impermanent. It's a temporary phenomenon. So maybe I'll leave it here. We'll probably continue talking about uh, equanimity for a couple more weeks, maybe to the middle of August. That we have about 15 minutes left. Be nice to hear from people what you've been learning about equanimity in your lives, questions that you might have about the talk, and both, you know, what you're learning making mistakes you know your experience of non-equanimity reactivity you know because we learn a lot by understanding our patterns of reactivity so feel free to bring that up too also then of course any places in your life where you're noticing more equanimity and how that's manifesting and how you understand the causes that are maybe leading to that equanimity that you're seeing in your life so what comes to mind yeah say your name
0: please uh, my name is amanda and I understand, understand, and to me, epiphanies has a lot to do with serenity, too. Uh, understanding it's like the serenity prayer, you know, understanding the things that you can change, the things that you can't, and accepting the difference. Uh, mm-hmm. But what one of the things you were just talking about, when you were talking about the politics, what is the difference between being accepting of how things are? and not being proactive. And there are things that you can change in the world. And that it seems like we have not only that we not only have the power to, but we have we ought to. So that balance of you know being able to be serene or sit back but also
1: proactive and positive. Yeah. Why, why might there be a problem? Like your the serenity prayers from St. Francis, right? Yeah, you know, I think that captures it just right. You know, that equanimity is this equipose. It's like uh, one image that my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, used to use a lot is a bowl. So you can imagine a really nicely formed round bowl upside down, and if you if you drop a marble or a little pearl at the top, it's going to immediately get off center. You know, it's going to fall over, and that he used as a description of an untrained mind. And then, if you turn the bowl over, the pearl will naturally go to the center, but you know, it can move in all kinds of directions. You know, we're sitting and we hear about some terrible thing happening in the world and when we have a lot of wisdom it doesn't mean our heart won't be moved by what we're hearing about or what we're seeing it's going to be more moved because the mind's less distracted and it's less fearful it's willing to in a way it has a greater capacity to sort of receive the information in an unfiltered way that normally we block off you know, so actually, in a, in a sense, the heart's going to be probably more moved. And then what would be in the way of a human being responding? If we're in that wise, equanimous, calm place, serene place, what would get in the way of responding? If we were attached to the serenity, then that attachment would not be equanimity. It would not be serenity. You know, if we're attached to the serenity, that's not a wholesome state of mind. So, pure serenity, pure equanimity isn't. There's no attachment to it. So, you know, using that image that Joseph Goldstein had, then you know, if, if a disturbance comes, the marble, the pearl, you know, will roll around for a while. There'll be action in the world, you know, but the the tendency would be to come back to center, unless there's another disturbance. So this is a nice image, like uh, we allow the heart to naturally and in a way truly effortlessly respond, moment by moment, to whatever arises. But there's nothing, there's no feedback mechanism. So when there's, in a sense, a disturbance, there's nothing to give that disturbance legs. The system, the mind-body system responds and gravitates back towards equanimity, towards peace. And this is really uh, an important place in practice because one of the things people notice as they deepen their practice is very subtle, or not so subtle, attachment to peace. You know, and then you, some of the telltale signs are like you don't like meditating in groups because they're too noisy. You know, there's always somebody moving, somebody sneezing. You know, but when you're home, you can get the conditions just right. But then, you know, the darn lamp buzzes, and you know the cat scratches on the door, and you know, and so you, you know, you spend twenty thousand dollars in new insulation, and <laughs> you know, and then you need the perfect, and the mind starts getting neurotic about calm, about peace, and then you realize, oh, this can't be the path. You know, and sometimes you, you have to rely on a good teacher or good spiritual friends of yours to kind of rock your boat a little bit. Or if you're lucky, karma, just circumstance will kind of rock your boat. You know, and you'll get pregnant, or <laughs> you get drafted, or you know, something will happen. You lose your job, or something like that will happen. And uh, and then we'll say, well, what does practice look like now? You know, how. Because the Buddha wasn't just teaching a practice that depended on perfect conditions, obviously. You know, and the way the the monks and nuns practiced at the time of the Buddha, of course, they were just wandering through the woods, you know, and they were dealing with creepy crawlers and mosquitoes and all kinds of, you know, irritating things, you know, and people who didn't know who they were and weren't happy to see them and other people who were like gaga over them and probably creating a disturbance that way and... And everything in between so we have to be on the lookout we get a little bit attached to the calm and to the serenity and it and so being part of the world sometimes our world means like just being part of our family and kids and being part of a spiritual organization I mean at any level will do basically you can take on the global issues you can take on community issues you can just take on the dynamic at your home and there's a lot there for all of us yeah thanks I forgot your name yeah. Amanda thanks Amanda other thoughts people have yeah and your name again
0: uh, my name is Charlie Charlie and I've been working
1: with the same name for a few
0: weeks and uh, one of the first things that I noticed call up with, uh it's clear that if I didn't grasp for something uh, what I get, what I And yeah. uh, it's it really been a recurrent uh, thing that I'm, I'm noticing and I'm not experiencing that directly. Uh, there's this really interesting sensation that I would uh, liken to uh, getting up on a water seat or something. Like all of a sudden, it's, hey, <laughs> this is different. <laughs> uh, and in my experience of these things that uh, I've repeatedly grasping after you know, this this point in my life is changing a lot. fairly dramatically over the last few weeks, just focusing on this. and, and not just in you know, it's it's not, not in one place but it's in you know, it seems to come up in multiple well, relationships and stuff. I feel very grateful
1: for the information. That's good to hear. And it's it's kind of the telltale sign of what we call insight, you know, when the mind understands something it hasn't understood about the nature of the mind and experience. One of the telltale signs of insight is it gets integrated and generalizes in our life. That's, in a way, how we know we've had an insight. It's like, I mean, I'm not talking necessarily really big ones, just but it's like things are different, and not just different in, with this relationship, but it's like all of our relationships that we have now have been affected by it. And that's uh, it's something to appreciate, like how understanding, see, the whole path the practice that the Buddha laid out is skillful means for transforming one's understanding of one's lived experience, because that's what's off. Our understanding of our experience is limited, and so to, we transform it. So instead of an understanding based on preconceived ideas, our conceptual map, we're transforming it to an understanding based on direct experience, and that's obviously going to be a, have more integrity. You know that kind of understanding. Yeah. Thanks. Other thoughts. A couple minutes left. Time for one more comment, maybe. Yeah, Amy.
0: Um, I uh, I discovered joy in my meditation tonight from, from, um, and the joy, you know, and often that feels very suffering. But um, I I found that. You know, I something that I repeat often uh, while I meditate is something that you said that you know, let the pain leave my series to it and through, I find a lot of effort in in that. And um, and uh, today, you know, that the pain but I always falls asleep and instead of shaking it out and fixing it or you know, and sometimes I even made that my kind of meditation practice, like filled yeah. field of blood rushing in, you know, trying to be quiet, don't disturb the peace, but feel feel what's going on in the body, and find joy in that. And today I found joy in that, that miracle that I didn't do a thing, I accepted it for what it was, I trusted that it will be as mysteriously as it came, and it, and it did. And, uh, and it was like, a miracle, going to And that brought joy, and, and it also brought humor, that even this you know, speaking quick can bring that joy that you're speaking of, that really simple joy.
1: Yeah. yeah. And on two levels, too. I mean, just on the level of having something like that kind of wholesome investigation that you described, It just allows the mind to collect itself in such a simple, wholesome way, because it's getting pulled in so many directions so much of the time. But just to take up that project of being present with that phenomena of the leg or foot falling asleep, even that, there's a lot of joy in that. And then if the mind is able to uh, come into sufficient balance, that some insight can arise, like to really Drop uh, the ways that the mind limits experience, you know, kind of conceptualizes or identifies with experience, and to really have a experience of like freedom from that extra stuff. Well, that's even more beautiful. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, we just get inspired when we have a little experience like that. It's because one of the things that gets generalized is from a little experience like that is that, well. The mind could do this in any moment. You know, It's just that the pain is a little bit more obvious, makes it a little bit easier to kind of come in, have uh, the right incentives to sort of be interested and stay present. But basically, any moment would do for that joy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit
0: dharmaseed.org